How many of you found that very challenging? <laughs> I did. Pastor got no rhythm. Okay, let's take a minute and pray before we jump into this text. Would you do that with me? God, what we're about to engage with is uh, so far beyond human comprehension that you as the God of the universe would not only choose to write down and cause these things to be written down so that we would understand them, but that you actually planted yourself here on this earth for this period of time to redeem your people. God, I ask that you help us to get caught up in the wonder of this, the mystery. I ask that your Holy Spirit, whom you've said you've given to us as a comforter, would just surround us and envelop us right now. Fill this room, Father. Give us a capacity to see things that we would never see on our own. Work through the longingness of our hearts. And we would confess, Father, to fragile hearts this morning. Hearts that have been wounded, individuals who are ill. God, just the events that have happened in the last couple of weeks wound us. When we think of brothers and sisters in Japan, halfway around the world, who are so grieved. But even in here, Father, in our, our own sphere of this metro area of Lansing, the losses that have been suffered in the last couple of weeks in those who have gone through great trauma. God, I ask that you would be a comforter. But in the midst of all this, Father, allow us to focus right now on you. Thank you for the joy that's represented in that music. You are our fountain. So we ask that as our fountain, you would just spill us like a cup that's overflowing. Fill us with your Holy Spirit. Give us the capacity to understand these things. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Over the last four weeks, we've been looking at this study in the book of John, uh, fourth book in the New Testament. If you're new to church, about two-thirds of the way through the Bible are the series of books called Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and then the third, fourth book being John. Uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are what we call the synoptic gospels. They're all looking through one lens. It's very similar to them. And as you read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you see the stories really line up together. And then along comes this book of John. And John is just like a standalone item. Now, John's one of the disciples also. He's gone through the same journey that Matthew, Mark, and Luke went through. But he comes at it from a different angle, a completely new view. And so because in John 1.18... John wrote down these words, No man has ever seen God except for the only begotten God. He's at that point pointing to Jesus. He has explained him, meaning Jesus explains God. So we call this story series that we're in the portrait because like an imaginary tripod with a big canvas on it, every time we see a brushstroke, of God from Jesus. There's another image captured on this canvas. 
Jesus is painting a portrait of God. So we've got this portrait that's developing in front of us, and we get to see what God looks like. It's cool, and it's profound, and John gives us this ability to see these things. Now, last week where we left off, because I couldn't finish the whole thing, we left John standing in the river. Okay, John the baptizer, John the one is separate than John the disciple, John the Baptist, standing in the river Jordan, and he's having this argument with these individuals who have come to see him to take him to task about why he has the authority to do what he's doing. He's baptizing people. And the Jewish legalists came to him, and they were challenging him over whether or not he could even carry out what he was doing because he didn't get his franchise rights from them. He didn't get permission. And he keeps pointing them back to Jesus. He doesn't care about debating with them. As a matter of fact, look with me up on the screen at verse 26 from John chapter 1. This is John the Baptist talking. Among you stands one whom you do not know. It is he who comes after me, the thong of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. So right away we see John doesn't want to get in a debate about baptism or legalism. He keeps pointing people to Jesus, and he says, you don't even know him. He's standing among you, and you don't even recognize him. He is so great. You think I'm great? This one is so great, I can't even untie his shoes. Uh, What John is doing there, he's referring to this reference we talked about last week, that the lowest of the lowest slave was the one that untied the the thong of the rabbi at the end of the day. The rabbi would come home, go into his house, and begin preparing, and the lowest of the lowest slave was the only one who untied the laces of the sandal. The rabbi's disciples didn't do that. And John is saying, I am am so unworthy of this one. I can't even untie his sandals. That's how great he is. But they didn't get it. Stunning, stunning humility. Now, don't forget, John the Baptist is powerful. He's so powerful that people of great wealth come to him, even though he had no money, looking for his guidance. He's so powerful that government shook Herod's government was troubled greatly because of the things that John was saying. But it was because of his preaching. He didn't perform any miracles whatsoever. And his preaching was one simple message, and it was urgent. Prepare your hearts. Get them ready, because the one that's coming is unbelievably magnificent, beyond your comprehension. So here we're going to pick up this morning in verse 29. This is where we left off last week. So if you have your Bibles with you, open up to John chapter 1, verse 29. If you're new to New Hope, you're going to find Bibles in the pew racks in front of you this morning. Those are there for not only your benefit during the service, but if you don't own a Bible, we'd love for you to take one of those with you when you leave today. They're just there as our gift to you. We want you to own God's Word and have a copy of it in your hand. So let's pick up at verse 29. The next day he saw Jesus coming to him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. There is lots of new material in John that's not in the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But likewise, there's lots of things in Matthew, Mark, and Luke that are not in John. And one of those things that are not in John is the baptism of Jesus. So very quickly, so you understand the setting, Jesus comes to John. John's on the bank of the river. And John sees him, and Jesus walks out to be baptized by him. 
John says, whoa, time out. No way. I'm not going to baptize you. You should be baptizing me. And Jesus says, no, it's proper for us to do that. So John, the disciple, in his story that we're reading here, leaves all that detail out. We see it in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Look with me up on the screen. You see it in Mark 1.9. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Immediately coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens opening and the Spirit like a dove descending upon him. And a voice came out of the heavens, you are my beloved son, and you I am well pleased. But John the Baptist just skips over that detail that you just saw there. Instead, he says, behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. This is the high point of John's testimony, the absolute pinnacle. He's not caring about any of the other details other than the Lamb of God has arrived. And so his witness stands on this amazing designation. The Lamb of God is here, and he's about to take away the sin of the world. See, John's been telling, at this point, he's been telling Israel for months, perhaps years, he's been telling Israel that the Messiah is about to come. The Messiah is going to be arriving. Now, John the Baptist himself, you're going to see in just a minute, he does not know the identity of the Messiah. He keeps being faithful. He may have had his suspicions about who it was, but he does not know for sure. He doesn't have proof. And the proof comes at the baptism of Jesus. When Jesus comes to the waterfront, all of a sudden, everything changes. One day, he doesn't know who it is. The next day, he knows specifically who it is. Why? Why the difference from one day to the next? Because of what he saw and what he heard. Two things specifically. What did he see and hear? First of all, I told you, John's under protest. He's protesting against Jesus, saying, no, I'm not supposed to baptize you. You're supposed to baptize me. And Jesus says, no, let's carry this out because this is what the God the Father wishes. So John baptizes Jesus. When Jesus comes up out of the water, whoosh, the Spirit of God descends on him, we're told, like a dove descending upon Jesus and remains on him. And then John hears something. We're told in Scripture that every time God speaks, as we look at the Bible, every time you hear God's audible voice, the people surrounding believe it to be thunder because the voice is so powerful. It roars. And what John sees is the Spirit of God descending like a dove, resting upon this one, Jesus, that he just baptized. And then he hears the roar of God's voice saying, In you I am well pleased. And this changes everything for John. So I want you to get lost in the wonder of this. This one that they started writing about in John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God. We learned in week one, four weeks ago, that that's a reference to Jesus. Logos, capital W. In the beginning was Jesus, and he was with God, and he was God. This one is right in front of John. This one that we learned about last week in Isaiah 40, when Isaiah said, make the low places high and the high places low, and clear a highway for the Lord, because the mighty king is coming. This is the one he's referring to. And at this point, John says, he's so great, I cannot even untie his shoes. This is the one who's absolute before time. 
that John is baptizing. So the very next brushstroke you see on this canvas is when John says, he's a sacrificial lamb. He's the lamb of God. So already from the very beginning, he looks like a lamb. The Jewish people understood this because of the sacrificial system they went through in understanding that God told them that when you sacrifice a lamb, it wipes out your sin, clears it away. So he understands when he calls him the sacrificial lamb, this one that he's baptizing is about to die. This is the one who came to make a sacrifice. So we understand now, if you don't mind linking verse 14 in your Bible with verse 29, you see when it says the word became flesh, this one, now we see why. He became flesh to take away the sin of the world. So verse 14 and verse 29 link together. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Why? To take away the sin of the world. And John says, it's happening now, right here in our midst. So that's why he goes on to say this in verse 30. This is he on behalf of whom I said, after me comes a man who has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. I did not recognize him, but so that he might be manifested to Israel. I came baptizing in water. John testified, I have seen the Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven, and he remained on him. Just as an aside, this one's just kind of thrown out there, and you almost blow right by it, but it says, for he existed before me. And if, if you're a literalist and you look at Scripture, you understand John the Baptist was born six months before Jesus. How can he say he existed before me? But that's what he says because he understood Jesus is before time. And then the Word became flesh and became incarnate. So John's looking back through eternity and saying, this one who is here, he has a higher rank than I, he existed before me, and I didn't even recognize him. You see that first? And you're going to see it again in verse 33. So all the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all speak to the Spirit descending like a dove and remaining on Jesus. And now John says it as well. Never before, never in history before, never again. The Spirit descends upon Jesus, the fullness of the Spirit, and remains on him. And from this point on, John gets it. He sees and understands Jesus is the Messiah, even though he didn't get it before. One day, he's preaching, he's coming. The next day, he's here. So look with me at verse 33. I did not recognize him, but he who sent me to baptize in water said to me, he upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining upon him, this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. Do you get the sense that John wanted you to understand? He didn't really understand this beforehand. He said it twice now. I didn't recognize him. He may have had his suspicions, like I said. Jesus and John are cousins. He had to have heard Mary over the years talk about this uniqueness of Jesus. He had to hear his mother Elizabeth talk about this, but he didn't know for sure. And now because of the descending of the Holy Spirit and the roar of God's voice, he says, I get it. Verse 34, I myself have seen and have testified that this is the Son of God. I told you throughout the book of John, you're going to see these legal terms. The word testified is another one of those. Marturios is the word. 
And it literally is like standing in a courtroom and saying, I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. That's what John's saying here. I'm Marturios. This is the Son of God. So from this point on, he points to Jesus as the Messiah, the Son of God. The next verse that we're going to look at reveals a great deal about John's nature, John the Baptist, because he's just about to fade out of view. But this last few verses we see here show us a lot about his character. Look with me at verse 35. Again, the next day, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked, and he said, Behold the Lamb of God. So if you're a detail person and you really like circling things in your Bible, you might want to circle the next day because that's the third day in a sequence. The first day, that's when John's arguing with the legalist. He's standing in the water, and they're asking why he has authority. The second day, that's when Jesus comes to be baptized by him. And the third day is what we're talking about here. The third day is the third day in the sequence. And these two disciples that are with him, Andrew and John apparently didn't hear it the day before. So John declares the exact same thing again, and he says to them what he said to the crowd, Behold, the Lamb of God. And here's the proof of John's humility. Watch in verse 37. The two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. So at one moment... The rabbi, John the Baptist, has his disciples around him. They're learning from him. They're watching. They're gaining guidance from him. And as soon as John points to Jesus, they walk. They're following this one. The first thing that occurs to me is the reason they're doing this is there probably were some campfire side times when they're sitting on the side of the river, and John had to be explaining to them what the Messiah was, what the Lamb of God was, because there's no hesitation. They immediately take off and start following him. The second thing that I notice here is how hard would that be for John? How hard would that be when you're the most prominent individual? Everyone is coming to you, and you watch your disciples walk away. And it doesn't say that he was grieved over it. Because this is precisely what he's been called to do. This is why he arrived and began preaching about the arrival of the Messiah. He's preparing men to leave and follow Jesus. So John's carrying out what he's asked to do. And right here you see that John begins to fade out of view. This is one of the last references you ever see to him. John the Baptist just disappears. Until chapter 3, he pops in on the scene very quickly when he's executed. But here, he just fades out of view. It's no wonder why Jesus said, there is no one greater born among women than John the Baptist. Now think about that. Greater than Moses, Plato, Socrates, Alexander the Great, Daniel. Jesus said, no one born among women is greater than John till this point in time. I want you to look on the screen at Matthew eleven eleven with me. See this reference by Jesus. Truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Now, what was Jesus referring to there? He is talking about you. 
John's on this side of the cross before the death of Jesus and before the resurrection. Everybody else, we're on the other side of the cross. We live after it happened. And Jesus is saying, as great as John was, you have the privilege of looking back through the text and seeing who this Son of God is. You have the power of the Holy Spirit to be able to understand the text. So Jesus is saying, even though John's great, you're greater. You believe that, church? Say that with me. I am greater. Okay, let's say it again. I am greater. Because John is told here to be great, born among women, but Jesus, the king of all kings, says, you're greater because you have the privilege of looking at this and seeing this redemption that God provides through Jesus. I want you to see the very first words that Jesus says. This is in verse 38. Very first words that he says to the disciples. Verse 38, And Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What do you seek? They said to him, Rabbi, which translated means teacher, where are you staying? Do you notice that Jesus didn't say, Who are you looking for? He said what? He said, What are you seeking? And say, who are you looking for? Because they already know. John's pointed them, the Lamb of God. We're looking for the Messiah, but we want to understand things. So Jesus is walking along, turns around, sees them following him, and says, what's on your heart? What are you inquiring after? They're not asking about who. They're asking about what. And Jesus is not asking for his benefit. He already knew. He's asking them to challenge their thoughts. What are your motives? Why are you coming behind me? There's a theologian who's passed away. His last name is Lenski. I captured a quote from him. I want you to see that. He captured it very well when he referred to this. This first word spoken by Jesus is a master question. It bids them look searchingly at their inmost longings and desires. So get this. You've got this one whom heaven spoke about, whom John the Baptist said, that's the Lamb of God. The heavenly Spirit of God descends upon him. And John points and says, that's him. That's the Lamb of God. And so these two guys take off after him, and I picture them like a couple of kids. And Jesus turns and says, what are you guys after? What's on your heart? And like a couple of kids, I'm picturing them, so where do you live? That's their response. Look at that very closely. That's the best question. you got the Son of God in front of you, and you're going to say, where do you live? I think they're confused. I think they're very surprised by his inquiry. This question is really intended to encourage them to verbalize what they want him to do. He's trying to help them to crystallize what's going on in their mind. And so Jesus is very gracious because they don't know how else to respond. They say, where do you live? And Jesus says, come on over and see. I want to show you where I live. So look look with me at verse 39. He said to them, Come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. Excellent! You not only get to go over and talk to the Lamb of God, you not only get to go and see where he's living, he invites you to spend the night because it's four in the afternoon. I want you to see a specific detail here. If you don't mind circling in your Bible, circle the 10th hour. Because in the, in the Jewish time clock, that's four in the afternoon. So much of the day has gone by. 
And because it's late in the afternoon, Jesus says, come on over. I'll show you. And they spend the rest of the day. Most theologians believe they spent the night there just chatting with him. Here's what's remarkable to me about this. When John the disciple wrote what you're reading this morning, he's in his mid-90s. And he's looking back across 70 years of his life, remembering when he's in his 20s. And it is so vividly etched in his mind when he met Jesus Christ. He can tell you when he's in his 90s, it was four in the afternoon when I met him. It was four in the afternoon when I encountered the King of Kings. It's precisely etched. And when you see times like that in Scripture, you generally know you're looking through the eyes of an eyewitness, someone who was actually there because he can give you such detail. So we see here another brushstroke took place. If you got your canvas and Jesus is making another brushstroke, we see how gracious our God is to those who are genuinely seeking after him. These kind of guys are walking along, and our God turns and says, what are you after? And he graciously invites them in. So your God is very friendly to seekers, people who want to know more about what's going on. And we have absolutely no record of what's being discussed between the three of them when they go spend the evening with him. But it must have been awesome because they're so convinced that this is the Messiah, they take some action the next day. There's no record whatsoever of what was discussed, but it causes them to be convinced this is him. Look with me at verse 40. This is where we're going to wrap up these last two verses. Verse 40 says, One of the two heard John speak, meaning John the Baptist, One of the two heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. Let me give you a little historical context so you understand what's going on here. So John, the disciple who wrote this book, as a young man in his 20s, is a fisherman. His brother's name is James. He's a fisherman. Then there's two other guys, one by the name of Andrew and one by the name of Simon. They're fishermen. So these guys, they have their business together, and they interact together. They go to the sea together. They mend their nets together. One thing you need to know is that fishermen were men of substance financially. In order to take a boat out to sea, you had to have some financial substance. You had to be able to buy the boats. You had to be able to staff a crew because these are big boats. You had to be able to buy nets You were a good businessman in the marketplace because you sold your product. And very likely, these individuals inherited this business from their fathers. So we've got Andrew, who is a fisherman, who's gone away from the fishing business to spend the time with Jesus, who immediately runs down to the pier to find his brother, Simon. Simon, you'll find out in a minute, is also known as Peter. And Simon is so convinced that this is the Messiah, that he runs to his brother at the fishing business and says, you've got to drop everything. We found the Messiah. Come with me so that you can meet him as well. So look with me at the next verse, verse 42. Oh, I'm sorry, verse 41. He found first his own brother, Simon, and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which translated means the Christ. So you see right away now, coming up the next verse, Andrew's not content just to tell Peter about it. He's got to actually take him there. So go with me to verse 42 now. He brought him to Jesus, and Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, 
the son of John, you shall be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. Now, there's something really significant going on in this last verse. I really want you to get this down. First of all, on the screen, you see that next to the names, I put the Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic because his name in Hebrew is Simon. That's his name given to him at birth. You shall be called Cephas is Aramaic. That's the language Jesus spoke, which is translated Peter, which is the Greek language. So immediately on this first greeting, Jesus' very first words to this individual is that you're about to endure a name change. You're about to have your identity changed. He says, Andrew brought you. Peter's here in front of him. Peter came to Jesus. Jesus saw him. Jesus named him. Jesus looked at him is what I'd love for you to circle in your Bible. And I want to explain to you the word looked. So when you see that Jesus looked at him, you might very quickly think, this is just a glance. There's two ways that the word look is used in the Bible. There's blepo and emblepo. Blepo means, I see the communion table back there. I see the pulpit. You don't do anything with it. You just see it. Emblepo, you see the definition perhaps on the screen, means to observe fixedly or to discern clearly. So when God sees Peter for the very first time, he looks not into the face of Simon the fisherman. He looks into the heart of the man and sees the one whom he's about to mold and shape. And so he's going to give him a brand new name. You understand that your God sees everything? Nothing escapes his attention. We learned about that in the book of Revelation, didn't we, when we studied that last year, that Jesus' eyes are a flame of fire, Scripture says. Look with me on the screen. Revelation 1.14, his head and his hair were white like wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire, meaning laser-like eyes. Nothing escapes his attention. Everything is within his vision. And God the Son sees Peter, Simon the fisherman, and says, you're no longer going to be Simon. You're now going to be Peter. I'm going to give you a new identity. So Cephas or Peter, one and the same, means rock. It's the word Petra. It means a big boulder. So why does God give him this nickname? Because as a young man, Simon Peter was impetuous. And he was given to brash actions. He was always the first one to jump in. He was generally the first one to jump back out again. He was constantly vacillating back and forth. And Jesus sees this characteristic in him. And so he says, Simon, Bar-Jonah, meaning Simon, son of John. If you looked at his Hebrew birth certificate, it would say Simon, son of John on it. You're no longer going to be Simon. You're going to be Peter the Rock. Now, I'll just give you an aside. When you look at Scripture and you see sometimes he's called Simon and sometimes he's called Peter, when he's really good, Jesus calls him Peter. Way to go, Peter. You're the Rock. When Peter's a bad boy, Jesus says, Simon, okay? 
Sometimes, he says to him, Simon Peter. That's like saying for my mom, Mark Richard, to get your attention. So Jesus trades this name back and forth and says, Simon, you're behaving like the old man. Peter, you're behaving like the new man. And this is in his first meeting with Jesus. I want you to catch the implications of this. When in the Bible you see someone's name changed, it has huge implications. Think about God creating all the animals and then giving Adam the right to name the animals. God's the creator, but he's given Adam rule over the earth. And so he says to Adam, I'm going to allow you the authority to change or give the name to the animals. You see the same thing with Abram, named Abraham, Sarai, named Sarah. God changed their name because he's about to change their destiny. And this reflects God's sovereign control and his purposes. So Jesus' first face-to-face meeting says, Simon, this is who you were. Peter, this is who you will become. So every place he goes, he carries this new name with him. It's a measuring bar, and it reminds him of who he's supposed to strive towards being who he is to become as an individual in Christ, and he's challenging him to pursue it. Do you know that if you are a Christ follower, you name the name of Jesus, that eventually you're going to get a new name? Scripture promises that Jesus will do the same for you that he's done for Peter. Look with me up on the screen at Revelation 2.17. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, to him I will give him some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone which no one knows but he who receives it. The first thing you see there is that it is so intimate between you and Jesus. He's not going to tell anybody. It's just between you and him. Now, this reference here takes you all the way back to the Greek Olympic Games because when a Greek Olympian competed in a race and they were the victor, they, they completed with victory in their race, at the end of the race, they were given a white stone and their name was etched in it. And that white stone was their invitation ticket to the celebration party at the end of the day. Every Olympic athlete got one of those white stones with their name etched in it and it allowed them entrance into the party. So Jesus is saying here, eventually when you enter the party, you're going to get a brand new name, and it's so intimate between you and I. I'm not going to tell anybody. It's just between us. But it's a name that's precious to me because it represents your identity. So if you're looking for another portrait stroke on the canvas, I would say God sees you. God knows you. And God identifies you with a brand new beginning. Peter gets a brand new start. Everything from the past is wiped away. Be a Peter. Don't be Simon. Keep striving for that high goal. A brand new start. This name that you're given right now is one that we're all identified by if you're a Christ follower, and it's called the child of God. Look with me up on the screen. First of all, 1 John 3, 1 says this, See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called, there's a name, children of God, and as such we are. How many parents in the room this morning? You don't mind raising your hand if you're a parent? Okay. 
when your child was born. You're standing in the delivery room. Did you turn to the doctor and say, what kind of a name do you want to give this child? Did you turn to the nurses? No, it's the right of the parent to name the child. It's the right of the one who has authority over that individual's destiny to give them a name, a brand new beginning. And so God says, you're called right now my children, and as such we are, 1 John says. But eventually Jesus says, you're going to get a new name. But in order to do that, you have to become his child. Scripture also speaks to that because not everyone is in. Only those who receive Jesus Christ. Look with me on the screen, John 1.12. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe on his name. So your pedigree doesn't matter. Matters not if you were born in the Asian continent or the European continent. It matters not if you're Jewish. It does not matter if you're Muslim. It does not matter if you're Jehovah's Witness. What does matter is an individual puts all of that behind them and says, that's who I was. I understand now through the truth of Scripture and the revelation of the Holy Spirit, I have to be a Christ follower. I have to claim the Lord Jesus Christ in my life. I have to leave Simon behind, and I have to become Peter and chase after Jesus. I have to become like this rock. So whether you're a good person or not does not matter. It's only those who receive him and those who believe in him. And that literally means latching on, and Jesus will hold on and never let you go. If you've never dealt with this issue in your life before, this may be the first time you've ever heard this, I encourage you, if you're feeling what Michael was talking about at the beginning of the service, that gentle prompting, that tugging on your heart, deal with it today. Don't let another day go by because God sees you as precious and he wants you to be his child. But he says, those who receive him and those who believe him become the children of God. So today, if you want to deal with that, here's what I'm going to ask you to do. As a church, we're going to pray in just a minute. And I'm going to ask while every eye is closed, everybody's got their head bowed, if you want me to pray for you this morning about that issue, just raise your hand right where you're sitting. And if you would like to talk more about it afterwards, come on up and talk to me. I'd be happy to do that. I'd be thrilled to do that. If you want me to pray for you this morning, I'm not going to call you out by name. No one's going to see you raise your hand. Just raise your hand right where you're at, and I'll be sure to pray for you specifically. Okay? Let's take a minute and pray and ask God to apply these things to our heart. Father, I believe that your spirit has been at work here this morning and that you are calling individuals. And I don't know who that is. But God, I ask right now that you would impress upon their heart for some individual who would like for me to pray for them to cause them to raise their hand right now. Perhaps they're just struggling with this issue, God, and they're not sure of all the answers to these issues. I see your hands. Thank you, and I will pray for you. You continue to wrestle through this. That is God's Spirit working on you. You can put your hands down now, and I'll pray for you. God, I see individuals in this room who are asking for understanding about your nature and your character, and their heart is sincere. They're looking to know more about you. 
I pray, Father, that if this information this morning wasn't enough, that you'll provide them with what they need. But specifically, God, I guess that you just continue to be there for them, that your spirit would work in their heart, that you would call them to yourselves. God, I ask for everyone in this room that we would be willing to walk boldly before you. We have this kind of information available to us, Father, for the reason that you wanted to equip us to help us to understand who you are. So God, I thank you for these brush strokes we've seen this morning on this canvas and this explanation that Jesus is giving of you. And Father, I ask that you take these things and embed them deeply in our heart. And that will cause us to be a bolder witness for you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray and I ask these things. Amen.